It is a blessing and an honor to have you with us today. My, for those who don't know me, my name is Peter Botros. I'm one of the uh, pastors here, and it's an absolute honor. We don't just say it, we deeply feel it. It's our absolute honor and privilege to have you with us. If you're here for a long time or you're visiting with us afresh or uh, we just came with a friend today, we're so blessed and honored to have you with us. Today, we move on in our second uh, part of a brand new series we started last week, and that is Adventure, the Adventure. And we were uh, basically looking at the idea that life is an adventure. Wouldn't you agree? All of us are looking for a destination to our journey. Not many people get in a car and hope for the best. They just travel around hoping they will arrive at their destination. We do come to whatever journey that we take on board with a clear hope and a destination in mind. <clears throat> and we're looking at the life of a guy named Nehemiah who appeared on the pages of history around 450, almost 500 years before Christ. And uh, uh, he appeared uh, in, a, in a community known as the post-exilic community because people of God at the time uh, were enduring a significant challenge and were just about to exit uh, that particular challenge. <clears throat> For many years, almost a, uh, a thousand years, God's people knew that if they obeyed God, and they followed his standards and his plan for their lives, God will look after them and will protect them in their, in their land and will make them a light to the nation. However, for some strange reasons, as it happens in all centuries, God's people take him for granted and pursue other alternatives. In those eras, those alternatives were literally other gods. They were pagan gods. And God sent his prophets and, uh, and his messengers to his people over and over again, asking them if they would turn from their evil ways and they would follow after the one who loves them and cares about them and who brought them into existence. But obviously God's people <clears throat> uh, continued in their disobedience until God said, okay, you really want to worship pagans? I'm going to take you to the center of paganism. And he got the Babylonians uh, to come to, uh, uh, to the land and to take the Judah, the tribe of the, 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 the uh, southern kingdom, and take them away to Babylon in an exile that lasted almost 70 years. And after that, a guy called Cyrus, a king of Persia, came and took over the Babylonian uh, in, uh, uh, empire. And he, uh, around 539, decided that whoever wants to go back to their homeland are welcome to go back to, uh, to their land and, and rebuild their temple and rebuild their economy. So some uh, of the uh, Jews returned to Jerusalem while many others were so happy with the land of captivity because it was almost like a land of prosperity and they stayed around. However, those who left, they left with a guy around 538 uh, B.C. went with a guy called Zerubbabel, and he was the first uh, wave of ret uh, returnees, the people that returned back to their homeland. Later on, another guy named is, uh, Ezra, who took another wave of people that returned, and they rebuilt the temple about 516 B.C. And however, 
uh, they didn't really finish the work of building uh, their walls. And uh, the city walls doesn't make sense around here unless you're in America and you heard Trump. But the rest of the countries of the world with some sort of sanity realized you can't really build a wall around a country. But in those days, it was like the law and order. And uh, that was the protection that they had at the time. And if you didn't have a wall, the city was vulnerable to the attack and the invasions of the neighboring uh, uh, countries around them. And they were not in a safe environment. And it created for them a bit of chaos in their day-to-day operations. And this guy, Nehemiah, uh, grew up in captivity. He wasn't actually, most people say he was born in captivity and hadn't been to Jerusalem. He stayed behind when many people returned to their homeland. And whilst he was there, he was promoted to a great place in the empire, as we will see in just a moment. However, something happened that shook his world. A brother came back from their homeland. And you know when you've got a relative coming from overseas, you say to them, how's it going down there? Tell me a little bit more of what's happening. And as his brother, whether official or or figuratively, spoke about the conditions of the people of God and back home and that the cities are burnt and, and, and they haven't been built and everything was chaotic and they were disgraced, it hit Nehemiah so hard. It's written that he, that he wept and fasted and mourned and prayed almost for four months. He was gripped by, by, by the condition, by the concern, not only for his people, but for the reputation of God and the vision that God had for Abraham and his descendants, that they would so be a blessing to the nations around them, that they would be such a light to the world, that the temple would be such an exhilarating, an exciting environment for God's people and the nations to come and to magnify this one and awesome God, one and only God. But when their condition was so bad, God's reputation was also hampered in the world. He was moved. And we said last week that he, it, the vision gripped him. The vision took hold of him. He couldn't ignore it. Also, the vision freed him. It freed him from continuing to live his own life and his own dream that was so comfortable and luxurious. And that very vision, it changed the direction of his life, the trajectory of his life. It changed everything. He had a vision, but he had to forsake the palace in order to go back to Jerusalem with the poor people and rebuild the wall. And you and I have a God-given assignment, God-given purpose, and God-given vision, but that God-given purpose is beyond your man-made palace. Your God-given vision is beyond your man-made palace and beyond my man-made palace, beyond the adventure that we have for ourselves the dream we have for ourselves. Friends, uh, you may have mistakenly heard it, that as you come to Christianity, as you come to Jesus, He will bless you, He will prosper you, He will basically enable you to build your own palace. There is nothing biblical about that. Jesus came first and foremost 
to take you on a journey, to take you on an adventure that reflects God to the world. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about your palace. It's not about your dream. It's not about your adventure because your adventure, regardless of how great it may sound, you and I know it does not compare with the plans and purposes that God has for you. Nehemiah recognized that he was living in luxury. He ate what the king ate. He was almost the second in the charge in a, in, 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 or second most influential person in that particular empire, the biggest Persian powerful empire of the time. He ate what the king ate. He learned what the king learned. He was aware of everything. He had the dignity of those who were associated with the king. He had all the glories and the wealth that was associated with the, with the land where he lived in Babylon. Yet he recognized that that was simply not enough. And if you, if I, at any stage and we go through seasons in life where something seems so attractive, a lifestyle seems so exciting, a plan that you have for yourself or for your family or whatever it might be that is so beyond your care for that which God may have for you. I understand. It's okay. It's a season in life that you're pursuing something and that will become a learning point for you and for I when you recognize that your heavenly Father has something better in store for you. It doesn't mean that your plans are bad. It simply means they're insufficient to bring you the fruitfulness, the flow, and the fulfillment that you've been looking for. But when the day comes, when the day comes that a vision from God, a purpose for your life that excels and exceeds your own expectations of, of your life, when that vision grips you, it creates attention, attention for you, attention between what is and what could be. Just several uh, weeks ago, we were away on a, on a family holiday, knowing that this series was coming up. I took a book known vi as Visioneering to reread again by an incredible man of God, a pastor, a leader, an influential, incredibly influential person. His name is Andy Stanley. And uh, I, I read that several years ago, but I reread it again about having a vision and a purpose for your life. I would recommend that uh, uh, book uh, specifically for those who want to confirm God's vision for their life. By the way, I'm going to interrupt myself for a second. For those of you who know God's vision for their life but want to get that confirmed, or those who want to discover God's purpose for their life, for their unique lifestyle, tonight I begin a, a, a different series, almost like a workshop style, where we're going to look at God's purpose and God's design for your life. It's more like a bit of a reflection rather than speaking at people. However, this is what Andy says. He says, a vision, and that's predominantly a personal vision, not an organizational vision. He says, a vision is born in the soul of a man or a woman who is consumed with the tension between what is and what could be. What is and what could be. And you and I have had that experience on a miniature scale. When you, if you're a parent and you saw your kids growing up and you saw what they were doing and what you had planned and dreamed of them becoming, you did everything you could to help them perceive that vision, 
to see the dream of what could be so much better than what they're currently doing. And you may even have helped them to make some progress towards that journey. You know, for your own life, even if, if you're a student or a teacher and, and you've seen people around you who are consumed with something uh, during their academic endeavors and you say, if only you've got so much in you, you can do so much better than that. And once you get them convinced about what could be, Instead of what is that tension creates energy and motivation. It energizes you. It turns what is mundane into something significant and helpful and purposeful. It doesn't change the mundane. It just gives it meaning so you can push through and it gives you perseverance in life. And you and I have seen people like that. You and I have read about people like that. People who are consumed, who are gripped with a vision that's bigger than themselves. A vision that they were willing to give up that palace in order to take on that purpose that God had for them. People who were just like you and I. People who had just as much adversity and opposition just like you and I. People who had just simply low levels of capacity and low resources. Yet despite all odds, they were able to push through and begin the journey of accomplishing what God had placed on their heart. You know them. They inspire you. Their stories inspire you. The more adversity they've had, the more glamorous it is to hear the ending of their story. But for every amazing story of somebody living purposefully, purposefully in life, you know people, and you have read of people, and you have seen people who are basically living the mundane, routineish life that they've got in them in their day-to-day operation. They get to work or school, they come home, watch TV, they cook, do the chores, and you know that they do the same thing over and over again until they get a bit of a, a holiday, they enjoy themselves a little bit, but then they go do the same cycle again. And for every one of them, your heart's prayer, if you're a close family member or a friend or or if, some, if, or, or if you know them from that church, your heart's desire for them is simply that they would live the God purpose because there will be so much more fulfillment in their lives. And there will be a blessing to themselves, their family, their church, and the community at large. But the problem is that no one, no one ever have seen a preferred future and decided that I don't want to do that. Nobody seen something better and decided, no, I want to live something boring and mundane and, and, and difficult and, and unfulfilling. Nobody do, does that. The reason why when, we're, we're, when we encounter a vision from God or we hear about a, pro, a, a purpose that God may have for us, we're confronted with three different reactions because of legitimate reasons. The first one, when we hear about the grand vision, the purpose that God might have for you, some of us feel stuck. We're stuck in our own ways. We're stuck with a job. We're stuck with schooling. We're stuck with a network that isn't necessarily advantageous for the purposes that we have and the dream that we have for our future. We may be stuck in a problem. We may be stuck in a family conflict. We may be stuck with financial uh, uh, um, limitations. We may be stuck with something. We feel like we have no idea how can we fulfill God's plan. We may even try a little bit, but when we don't get anywhere, we simply feel stuck. 
And for others of us, when we hear about God's purposes and unique plans that is greater than our own selfish plans, some of us remain passive. We say, yes, God has an awesome plan for my life. God has an awesome plan for my family's life. God has an awesome plan for the church and the community where we live. I'm simply going to pray. And many of us are willing to pray the price instead of pay the price. Many of us say, you know what, I simply do not have any effort or any time to invest the effort and the energies to collaborate in seeing this plan fulfilled. And you pray your heart out. Maybe God has got someone in your life, even in your family, that so desperately to have a transformation and encounter with Jesus that would change their life. And so I'm going to pray for them. But you do nothing further to help that. I've been confronted as I was reading in the past few days of Second Peter, my own devotional time. He keeps saying, make every effort, make every effort, make every effort to make your calling confirm. God intends for some of us to get off our seats and not remain so passive because passive would limit you from going forward. And some of us simply quit. We tried so hard and we failed over and over again, we simply quit because the vision is so big, the purpose is so elusive that we say we simply can't do much. So what differentiates those of us who pursue the God-given assignment? What differentiates those of us who pursue the God-given adventure? What differentiates some of us who take on a personal vision that's greater than the current palace, what differentiates those people who go ahead and do something and those who lament the fact that they can't do anything? What differentiates that? What equips us to pursue our God-given destiny and dream? And I dare say, Nehemiah resolved that puzzle for us with one word. And I'm going to share the word, and your first reaction will be, oh, yeah, sure. One word, what does that mean? You're living in la-la land, Peter. You have no life experiences. Well, bear with me. Suspend your judgment for another 10, 20 minutes and, and see whether that actually makes sense for you. I want to read you in, in chapter 1, towards the end of chapter 1, what Nehemiah prayed, and I hope you get it. It says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And he says that his position was a cupbearer to the king. The word I want to share with you very briefly today is the idea of favor. And favor is so profound, it will likely to change your perception in life. And the word favor simply means preferential treatment. Do you understand? Do you know that because of the covenant that Jesus has for you, God treats you preferentially than anything else you could even imagine? You have undeserved advantage in life. You have a capacity and grace and favor that is not beyond your capacity to manufacture. You have favor from God over you, not because of you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. 
I want to remind you, and I'm sure you're not going to remember that, if you have a phone, if you want to take the three scriptures that I'm going to put down and contemplate on them from three different Psalms, let's, uh, let's show the Psalms. The first one is from Psalm 5, verse 12, and it says this, Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. That's the person that's been made righteous by Jesus. You surround them, obviously, in the Psalms. It wasn't uh, specifically speaking of Jesus. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. As with a shield. The favor of God surrounds you, protects you from who you are, protects you from what you've done, protects you from what comes from opposition against you. The favor of God, the preferential treatment of God to those who are in Jesus Christ, their Lord. And the second, it says, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime in Psalm 35. God's favor stays with you for a lifetime. It's not exhausted because you haven't, you're stuffed up throughout the way. It is liberally and without reproach. And the last one I want to share very briefly says, May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Why? Because when it rests on us, it establishes the work, the vision, the purpose that God has given us to live in our life. Friends, it was favor that enabled Nehemiah to be able to do what only Nehemiah could have done through the power and the favor of God. And I'll give you three simple ways in which God's favor is working behind the scenes in your life and in my life so that he can enable you, so that he can enable me to live his assignment, his adventure, his dream for your life. Because we all need God's equipment if we're going to go on the adventure. Have you ever seen somebody go camping without tools, without the abilities that, 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 that they need, whether it's a caravan, tent? You know, you look at some of those things that people actually take with them on an adventure. I know a family in this church, they go camping often, and they have a coffee machine. That by itself made me want to go camping with them. But you need some equipping, some tools, to help you on the journey. And here are the three ways in which God helps you and I to take on board whatever challenges, whatever dreams, whatever vision he has for us. The first one uh, comes from that very prayer that he shared. And at the end of that prayer, he says that, uh, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man that is the king. And then he says, I was cupbearer to the king. I was a cupbearer. To the king. We spoke about this briefly last, last week. A cup bearer was somebody that is entrusted by the king to taste the food and the wine that goes before the king because it almost was like a, a protection. If they were poisoned, that's okay. The king's life is saved. So that person was really near and dear to the king. They would give their lives for the king. And that was the, uh, the, the way Nehemiah was appointed. They say he was also a confidant of the king. And uh, people look at the word and its existence in different passages of, of the Old Testament and say that usually it's people who are second uh, in charge or influential in the kingdom. So he had, a, he had the heart and the ear of the king all the time. He was in a high esteemed environment. He had political gossip come through him. He would know what it means and the decisions that the king would do in different arenas despite 
of the different oppositions that that king may have faced. He was prepared by his knowledge of the political uh, conditions of the different nations around him. So God was preparing Nehemiah before Nehemiah recognized that he was called into political leadership for the nation of Israel. He was preparing him in advance simply by connecting the dots in his life. God's favor was connecting the dots for Nehemiah even before Nehemiah recognized that he was going to be called into making a difference and living his vision. He didn't know his vision. He simply was born in captivity. He did what he needed to do to show integrity and get promoted. He did everything he could faithfully so that he made an impression in the palace. And all of a sudden, he was promoted to become almost a confidant, a second in charge in that huge, powerful empire. God's favor was connecting the dots for Nehemiah before he recognized his adventure. Friends, I have a quick comment to make. God's favor is connecting the dots in your life today. You may feel stuck in a job. You may feel stuck in a family conflict. You may feel stuck without support. You may feel stuck wherever you may be stuck. I want to tell you God is connecting the dots in your life. You are not in that family by accident. You are not in that work environment by accident. You are not in that particular friendship groups by accident. You are not in this particular church by accident. You are not in this neighborhood by accident. God is connecting the dots. God is mingling things together to shape you to be the person that will be used for His purposes. God is not asleep until the day you recognize your vision. God is behind everything that's going on, shaping your person and your character and your skills and your experiences for the day that you recognize the call that He's had upon you since beginning. You have God's favor over your life. Be faithful where you are. Many of us stand still and passive until the day God gives us the opportunity to do what He has promised us to do. You will never, ever, ever get the opportunity unless you've been faithful in the little because God is shaping who you are. Friends, God's favor is over your life without you noticing it. Be faithful where you are. Be faithful in the family where you are because if He can't entrust you with your family, He can't entrust you with His work. Be faithful where you work right now, where you're studying right now because if you're not disciplined in that, you will never be disciplined when you get what God has in place for you. If you can't relate politely with the people around you, how God can entrust you to care for more people that you don't even know yet? Firstly, God's favor is in our experiences. Look at the second thing in, 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 in Nehemiah chapter 2. And it says this. Nehemiah uh, got, into, uh, uh, got to, to, uh, uh, to see the king and meet with him. And it says, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Because he noticed that Nehemiah was sad. That's after four months of mourning and praying for God to do something. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. He had a very a clear idea 
of the vision of what God wanted him to do. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? Do you know that Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem before? And he's asking him, what, what are you going to do? He obviously wanted, to, wanted him to stay with, with the king. He says, give me a timetable. Give me a schedule of what you're going to do. It pleases the king to send me. So I set a time. The first thing we learn is Nehemiah had a clear idea of what one, God wanted him to do. And he had a very clear plan of how to go about it. He knew exactly how long it will take him to go there. He knew exactly how long, because you can't stuff around with the king. It's like, oh, listen, man, uh, I'm just going to be maybe a couple of months, three months, maybe four months. I don't know, maybe a year or two. You know, we'll play by ear. You couldn't play by ear with the king. You had to know your, your, your plan properly. He had a great plan. And then he asked the king for more stuff. He says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans Ephrates so that they will provide me safe conduct. He recognized that the area, he's going to pass by areas that he needs safe conduct. He needs safety. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams. He had an understanding. Have you ever seen a builder go to, a, to, you know, to whatever they get their timber from and say, give me a few of those. You can't just say, give me a few of those. You had clarity in the measurement of what you need and, and how much roughly you might get a little bit more, but you have some plan of what you're going to do with the material that you're asking for. Nehemiah had a very clear plan. How did he get that plan, you may ask? He's never been there. He hasn't been able to investigate it yet. He's going to investigate it at the end of chapter 2. How did he get all of that insight and Obviously, on top of asking his brother, on top of praying and thinking and investigating, he asked for God's empowerment to anoint his plan. Because yes, when you try to do stuff on your own way, when I try to do stuff on my own way, we fail. Absolutely, we fail. We just don't have the wisdom and the divine capacity to plan so far ahead. But God gave the anointing. God gave the empowerment over Nehemiah's endeavors. Friends, sometimes we feel so stuck, we don't plan. We just simply pray and be passive. But planning is a great thing, especially when you plan asking God's empowerment and God's anointing and God's wisdom and God's insight. God's favor falls on your endeavor, not without your endeavor, not despite of your endeavor. God anointed Nehemiah's preparation as he planned for the adventure. You and I need to plan instead of being passive. Do your part, and God would bless that endeavor. The last thing that I want to share is in the next uh, couple of verses, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted me my request. So I went to the governors of the trans efforts and gave them the king's letters. The king has also sent me, also sent army officers with me. The king not only granted him all the resources and the requests that he wanted, he topped that with something else. He sent him some protection on the way with an army of soldiers. I want you to know something that really 
really helpful for you and I as we plan our endeavors forward. Do you know that in Ezra chapter 4 and particularly verse 23, that is more likely, most likely, that same king that Nehemiah is asking him to finance the project is the same king that has simply several years ago stopped the, the building of the walls in Jerusalem. That's brick. What Nehemiah was actually asking, I understand that you stopped the, the rebuilding of the wall in the days of Ezra, but I'm asking you to reverse your call, your decree. That's absolutely incredible. If God, if God can turn the hearts of the king around whichever way he sees fit, do you think he can't give you the supernatural resources that you need to accomplish what you can't do? If God could turn an opposing king, his heart, who said, let's stop the building of the wall, to somebody that's actually going to finance the building of the wall, what more can God do in your life and in my life supernaturally? That's favor, friends. Will you ask for something that's insanely more than what you could ever imagine? You're not asking a neutral king. You're asking a king that had stopped it Previously, it's like going to your opposition and say, would you help me on this project? You know that that person had opposed you in the past and said, would you give me some money to do that? It's like, you're nuts. Who do you think you are? Like, I haven't got amnesia. I'm the one that stopped that. I'm not going to be tricked by you. But God has supernatural, extraordinary favor for his people. God does wonders in response to our requests. That's why we've been fasting and praying. And if you not uh, yet have a chance to fast and pray, I'm going to invite you. Join us in this last week. You know, pay the price. Don't merely pray the price. Say, God, I'm so desperate for your intervention. I do not know why. But somehow we've been convinced that grace means we do nothing and receive everything. It's like what my friends used to say. We all want to travel first class and pay economy. It just doesn't work that way. You can't travel first class if you're not paying anything. And the grace of God teaches us to say no. That means you have to do something. You have to say no to unrighteousness. You have to say no to self. You have to say no to your own ambitions and, uh, and dreams and hopes and say, Lord, yes to you, whatever you're going to say. I'm going to say yes in advance. That's real Christianity. God then provides those people with supernatural resources to do what they can't do. Just like God asked the people in the days of, of his uh, traveling the earth and his ministry on the earth, he said, roll the stones in Lazarus' tomb. Roll the stones. It's like, if you can't roll the stones, brother, we have a problem. You can't raise the dead. If you need our help to raise the, to, to move the stone, what hope have we got? But Christ wants you and I to roll the stones so he can raise the dead. You've got to play your part if you want God to play his part. God will do the supernatural, but only, only if you and I will no longer live for ourselves and show him that we're not going to live for ourselves. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says this, God opposes the proud. Have you ever seen opposition? You know how nasty it can be. You know how selfish it can be. You know how draining it can be. Imagine if God himself is opposing you. 
that's pretty not hopeful. God is saying, if you're living for yourself, if you're living for your own selfish ambition, if you're living to build your own power, if you're living so far away from my plans, if you're living so self-focused and so self-consumed, then you think, you know what? I just gained God's blessing so I can accomplish what I need. God says, I oppose that spirit. But shows favor to the humble. A person that is not living for themselves, that what humility is. It's not pretending that I'm humble. It's not thinking of myself. It's thinking of other people, or thinking of the plan that God has for his people. So how did Nehemiah show humility? Firstly, he shows humility in his prayer in, in chapter 1 by confessing his sin and saying to God, I don't deserve it. He waited submissively for God's timing, and he sought God's intervention so that he doesn't intervene himself. He, he recognized that he can't do it. Friends, let me finish off with this. Regardless where you are in life, God's favor is able to equip you. God's favor is able to equip the humble for wild, wild adventures. God's favor is able to equip the humble for wild adventures. Where you are today, God is able to equip you with life experiences that connects the dots for the day that you recognize that you were called for this, but not only called for this, that you were developed across the years for that purpose. Your personality, your learning, your, your relationships and your experiences, your failure. Do you know that Nehemiah was an Enoch? He was a lady. He was an Enoch. He wasn't going to be re responded to with great respect from the Jewish community. He had failures as much as he had successes. But nevertheless, God has connected the dot for him. Because when God opens the door, no one, and I mean no one, can shut it. And that's what God is going to do in your life day after day. You can look at opposition and say, you can go whatever way you want to go. God has a plan for my life. God has a plan for my family. God has a plan for my community. God has a plan for my church. God has a plan for the nation. And if only you would humble yourself so you don't live for your own purposes. If you only be faithful in the little. If you only be active in preparing for the future and you don't live for your own palace but for God's purposes. If you want to live prayerfully and pray the price and pay the price, I want to tell you, God's plan will absolutely rock you. But listen to me. God's plan won't be next week, next month. God's plan usually takes a long, long time. For a very clear vision in my life at the moment. And that vision came over many, many years. Over many years since I was a little kid when dad discipled me with another four people like spiritual father would. And by the time I, 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 I graduated from teaching and I was in, in ministry and recognized that people attend church but don't live the life that God has in store for them, I felt I failed people and I failed myself. And even though I had no ability in myself, I recognized God was going to resource me with the capacity that one day, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 20 years, I'll be able to help people live with spiritual parenthood. That they'll be able to look after somebody, grab somebody, encourage somebody, challenge somebody, and see them mature until Jesus is alive in them. And just to study, just to study one component in that from 2007 to 2017, I put every effort and energy waiting for God to do what only God do, what only God can do as I collaborate with Him. 
That's 10 years of waiting. From the day God asked me to be in ministry, 1990, 1996, April 1996. Until 2005 where I was in full-time ministry. That was time of waiting. And the vision hasn't come, glimpse of it come to fruition. Of a discipleship movement where people live Jesus like in their homes, in their communities, everywhere they go with their people who are parents to others who will look after them, who will teach them the word of God, who will help them by their example and model the identity of Jesus. That hasn't happened, but the day will come where it will happen. And I'll tell you one thing, I will not die wondering. I will pay whatever cost it comes, whatever difficulties that come my way because when God gives a vision it grips you, it frees you from selfishness and it changes the direction of your life. You could stand against that nation and say whatever God has put in my heart, I will do that. I will not die wondering until Jesus like disciples are in this community and throughout this nation and the nations because when God promises, God fulfills if only would live selflessly for his purpose. We're going to stand up now and we're going to surrender our life to Jesus afresh. Because God's purpose for your life will only be beyond your man-made palace. Would you stand alongside me today and say, God, we surrender to whatever vision and plans and hopes you have for our life.